How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Hope you are well. Hope you're kind of, it's going to be December now, next week. You're kind of revving up to the crimbo, the whole thing. Jesus, that started ages ago. I you know me, <laughs> in the shops. my head in the sand, I don't know nothing. <laughs> but today, John, we're going to talk about great financial frauds of our time. Yeah, we're yeah, I'm taking, looking forward to We're this taking actually. our cue from crypto, which as you know, in this podcast, we called crypto a long time ago, right? Because <laughs> I just, you know, yeah. if, you, if you've ever studied any monetary economics, right, at any level of profundity, you can see this nonsense happening again and again and again. And interestingly, it is a function or it is closely related to mainstream monetary policy. So when mainstream monetary policy is tight, i.e. interest rates are high, yeah. right, you tend to have much less capacity for financial fraud because you have a much less incentive for people to take huge risks. So we'll talk about that at the end. Okay, right? yeah. But of course, we are talking about FTX <laughs> and the collapse. I, I love this story. And, I <laughs> and the more I read about it, the more amusing and gobsmacked I am, actually. Gobsmacked, but you know, it has a million creditors, this company. Yeah. So that's a million small people. So imagine what it was, right? It was an exchange. So imagine if you are going into any market, right? Maybe a fruit market, like, mm. the, like Dublin fruit market. How does Dublin yeah, fruit market yeah, yeah. work, right? The traders pay the landlord a tiny few quid for the right to be able to trade on that stall. So yeah. you pay for your yeah. stall. So you know, let's break down an exchange. It works exactly the same way. So in order for the right to trade crypto in this case, or mm. any sort of crypto in this case, you paid a very, very, very small fraction to the landlord, which is FTX, but a very small fraction of billions and billions and billions of notional trades is a huge amount of money. That's why it ends up 
been worth 50 billion or 60 billion or whatever yeah. it was. So people get their heads around it, right? But what also happens in an exchange is you pledge real money to the exchange, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you say, I want to buy a million dollars worth of crypto-y stuff, right? The problem is you've got to pledge collateral, right? Mm, so it's real the stuff. Real stuff. So yeah. it's the real stuff that's gone missing, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so people don't seem to, we've got to break it all down. So in order, like if I want to have an account with stockbroker, in our, any broker, right? Yeah. You have to produce collateral. You say, I would like to buy shares in X company and the stockbroker says, I'll buy them at the best price possible. Yeah, yeah. But you've got to give them money to do that. You've got to give them real shit, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's the same thing that's happening. So these guys were... Well, well, we'll tease it out in a bit with Dan Davies, who's a really interesting guy. But first, I want to give a shout out. I, Go on. Is, I was on an Air Canada flight the other day from Toronto back to Dublin. And I'm sitting in an Air Canada flight and... Quaffing your wine. Do, and- you, do you know that we have fan bases amongst French Canadian flight attendants on Air Canada? Really? Really? Yeah. So I'm sitting there and... <laughs> The flight attendant comes up and, and she goes, hi, how are you? I said, fine. And she goes, one, one of the other flight attendants just here just wants to know, are, are you that guy who does the podcast? <laughs> that guy? Yeah. yeah, that David McWilliams guy. I said, yeah. Anyway, so it's a French-Canadian wow. woman, right? Called Nicole Prou, spelled P-R-O-U-L-X, right? Right. Okay. I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> but actually, interesting, she was telling me. Hello, Nicole. Hello, Nicole. Big shout out to you, Nicole. But she was telling me, and it's true, and, and JM will, ex- will, will explain this, you know, to us in private, that there are a lot of, or some French Canadians don't live in Quebec. They live in Ontario. Right. Or they live all over okay. French Canada, all over Eastern Canada, but some of them live in Ontario. She's, she's from that tiny minority of French-speaking Canadians who don't live within the borders of Quebec. Right, okay. And uh, she's a big fan. Fantastic. So that's what we've got fans all over the place. Fantastic. In well, spread small, the world, Nicole. small little French-speaking villages in northern Ontario, they're listening. Which Perfect. Which is all good. Anyway, what are we talking about? Financial scams. Financial scams. Just the one thing on, on FTX, which you were talking about earlier. It was the people that they actually hooked in, the people who signed up for this. Like, for instance, you know, you have Matt Damon and and all these guys and Tom Brady and his wife, now ex-wife, Giselle. Are they they exes? They are exes. But before they became exes, they did this ad for them. Have a listen. Can I talk to you about something? Yeah, we talked about it. I got another 10 years left, maybe 15. Not bad. This is big. What do you think? Are you in? You know what? I'm in. Let's call everyone. Hello, Tom. Doggy coin? Sue, Mark. Are you in? I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. All right, this last one might be tough. Nah, he loves you. Probably just getting on the dentist. This guy. First, even if you wanted to come back, we wouldn't take you. Yes, you would. Yeah, Yeah, we we would. would. You're right, we would. What's up? I'm getting into crypto. With FTX. You in? We're providing gives 360 degree access to the crypto markets with the ability to trade everything from alts to DeFi. I believe I'm in, but still hate you. Understood. Take care. Best of the family. Is he in? Yep. Did he say he hates you? He did. Even on the phone, that guy sounds handsome. I'm in. <laughs> I'm definitely in. <laughs> I'm out. Larry David was also involved. In, and as you were, you were saying, Miami Heat. Miami Heat, they, they, they had the naming rights for the Miami Arena. Where Miami Heat play, and then in 
UC Berkeley and all sorts of stuff. Like they they their fingers in all sorts of pies. You know, should they could have sponsored Kilconomics? <laughs> they would have been perfect. <laughs> Take the money and run. No, but let's actually because as I've always said, the credit cycle masks an extraordinary amount of nonsense, right? Yeah. And when you get these booms and busts, you know, we had it in the housing market in Ireland, right? Yeah. Charlatans, bullshitters, spoofers, you know, selling everything and eventually ending up going bust. So it's the same cycle, yeah. except in crypto, it was a hyper cycle, right? Yeah. Hyper cycle. But same type of characters, same types of it's greed and fear all the time. So what we'll do is there's a great book. There's a fella called Dan Davies, yeah. who's written a fantastic book, right? Fella called, Davies and not Davies. Yes, there's a fella called Dan Davies, yes, yeah. as opposed to Davis. Yeah. Obviously, the lesser part of the tribe. Oh, John, indeed, the lesser part. They're it's totally different. I read it years ago called Line for Money, right? Right. And it's, really, it's, all, it's all about the history of financial scandals and what happens. So Dan is over in Hollyhead, not that far ah, from us. Waiting for a boat. Waiting for a boat, exactly. Boat and a train, and hoping it won't stop a crew. Do you remember you used to stop yeah, a crew? Yeah, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, to yeah. Stop a crew, and then you go down places in Nuneaton and what was it? <laughs> Birmingham New Street. Was that the the? That's right. You were on the slow train. Did you? Always on the slow train. I'm still on the slow train, man. I've, I've never been on a fast train to anything. Bullet trains do not exist in my life. Let us go to Anglesey across the water and talk to Dan Davies, the author of this fantastic book called Line for Money, which I read about three years ago. And it's about frauds. It's about, basically, it's how legendary frauds reveal the workings of our world. And it's an amazing, amazing book. And when I read about our friend Sam Bankman Freed, okay. <laughs> Bankman Fried. Fried, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Bankman lied, I suspect, from FTX. I thought, you know what? Dan Davies is the man to talk to about legendary frauds and why they happen. And to put the latest crypto nonsense in the context of the history of frauds. Dan, how are you? Lovely to see you. Yeah, I'm very well. I'm very well. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Not at all. Did I, I, tell, did I tell you what? Hollyhead, a bar in Hollyhead. <laughs> I got stuck in Hollyhead once because, you know, obviously when the, with, with bad weather, the sailing wouldn't go. So you'd be stuck in Hollyhead. There'd be loads and loads of paddies stuck in Hollyhead. Yeah. And, and Hollyhead's a pretty rough around the edges, neck of the woods, isn't it? It's it's rough in the middle too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I remember being stuck there and said, "Well, I'll go into a pub, have a few pints, and wait for the next ferry." And Manchester City were playing, right? right. Man City used to have this is before they were bought by the Arabs, right? yeah, 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 with the Qatari money. We don't like the Arab money, right? When they were like Man City, Man City, Main Road, Man City, you know, they used to have a centre forward called Sean Goater. Okay, right. And they used to have these great T-shirts with a goat on them called "Free the Goat," right? <laughs> they have this like obscure-looking goat, Billy Goat, on it. Free the Goat. And I walked into this boozer, and I don't know is there is there a Dan? Maybe tell me is there an Anglesey branch of the Man City Supporters Club? Well, it's that whole part of North Wales coast is just a diaspora of Manchester and Liverpool because they, they they even even in the pubs. Uh, half of the pubs are owned by Manchester breweries. Ah, that oh, makes right. sense. Okay. Dan, let's let's look at. Okay, I'm looking at your book. the The book is just, it's fantastic. It's funny. It's 
talking about legendary fraudsters. I'm looking at this crypto stuff. Tell me, what do you make of the crypto stuff and where does it fit in your analysis of frauds and financial frauds and all that carry on? Well, I mean, the latest one, the Sam Bankman-Fried, it's very strange to me because there's almost no fraud to it. You know, in, in most of the cases of history, if you have wanted to do what this guy did, which is to take a billion dollars of customers' money and take it out and transfer it to your own bank account, that usually takes quite a lot of brain power and deceit to get round the systems. And this this guy just wrote himself a check. I mean, he didn't even write himself a check. He, he put an emoji on his internal chat, <laughs> and that was the that was the controls. So it's very strange in that way. That usually I kind of say in the book that the way that frauds get detected is you need to check them out in a way that they haven't been checked out before. But FTX, this thing had never been checked out in any way at all, and that was. That's super interesting to me because, you know, he got a lot of investment and he got investment from people who generally portray themselves as being experts and being the best in the business. You know, you have Sequoia Capital and they they did not check out anything. They clearly did not insist on any financial controls at all. Um, they didn't see accounts, but they had made a decision that that was what they were going to do. So was this was this almost like a FOMO moment for these types of funds? Because they are the guys who kind of bestride the world saying we can identify opportunities and we're gonna we're gonna buy at ten dollars and we're gonna sell on to somebody else at a hundred dollars and that's that's their calling card. That's that's their brag, which is you yeah. give us your money, we'll identify fantastic products and we'll be in before the rest of them. And then we'll IPO them and sell them back to the public. It's kind of a cost of doing business. You know, I mean, the big sort of thing here is that the optimal amount of fraud to have in any system is not zero. You know, you'd never want to be spending so much time and effort to eliminate all of the possible fraud, because if you do that, you're going to squeeze out so much legitimate business that, uh, you know, you're never going to get rich that way. And these guys seem to have accepted that they're going to every now and then get fraud in 200 million US dollar sized units. And they're taking that as the cost of doing things because they had made, I guess they trying to reconstruct the thought process of this. They'd said to themselves, we want to be invested in the crypto space. Yeah. If we start checking out all the crypto guys and throwing out anything that looks a bit dodgy, we are never going to invest in anything at all. You know, they all look dodgy. If we start trying to put controls and saying you've got to have a lawyer, you've got to have audited accounts or whatever, all of the crypto guys are just going to go, no, you know, keep your money. We, we don't want to deal with that. And so they must have thought, well, you know, if we lend, you know, 100 units of 200 million US dollars and one of them gives us a return of a thousand percent, then we can stand losing one or two and doing so in circumstances that when you look at those losses look really, really stupid. That seems to be the calculation they've literally made. That's it is kind of extraordinary. Do you think let's let's focus on the crypto, but then I want to talk about 
frauds. Like, obviously, the other day on the, on the podcast, we were talking about, you know, the, the sort of cockroach theory is that, you know, you never it's never just one cockroach. You know, yep. when you see one fraud, you see loads of them. Do you think that from your experience of looking at these down to history that this is only the beginning? They come in waves. You know, fra frauds do come in waves. And if you look at particularly the crypto space, there's no controls at all there. So it's going to attract people who want to do business in an environment where there's no controls. I mean, I've, I've almost given up on this writing about other subjects now because I ended up concluding that I wasn't going to get into crypto because they can invent new scams faster than I can write about them. It's a pretty damning, it's a pretty damning. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you think back to the non-fungible tokens, you know, yes, someone's selling, yeah. you know, <laughs> what I was saying to people then when I did presentations is, look, if you can sell a imaginary monkey for a million dollars, then anyone who's doing normal securities fraud is just a damn fool. Because, exactly. you know, you, you know, why would you possibly go to the trouble of launching a fraudulent company on the stock exchange when you can launch a coin or print an imaginary monkey and send that, sell that for a million dollars with almost no regulation at all? And then you've got a built-in mechanism to launder the proceeds. So, you know, this was something that was always going to attract crooks and flakes. And if you have any contacts in the legitimate world of crypto, you know, and there are such things, there are true believers from way back who really do believe in this as a business model, they're just tearing their hair out because they know that whatever they've been trying to build, you know, as an actual honest Web3 business case, it's swamped you know they they the tail is more than wagging the dog the the frauds and the speculation and all the phonies uh, are just what everyone thinks of as this industry because it's the vast majority of the industry well precisely because it is the vast majority of the industry so i mean what you have is this bizarre situation where the good guys so to speak are a tiny minority yeah. and the bad actors are everywhere and yeah. and and then this is this is what i think i mean we've been on the podcast very 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 not even sceptical, outright damning of, of, of crypto, primarily because lots of the people I spoke to and listened to who were pumping this stuff seemed to me like grifters. Yeah. I, I, you know, how do you make a billion dollars? Well, you invent your own sort of crypto coin and then you sell it to yourself. You sell one of them to yourself for, for $10,000 and suddenly you're a billionaire because the other 99% doesn't trade. But let's go and look at great frauds from the book okay of yeah. uh, you know give us give us a flavor of the sort of financial frauds out there because the reason the context is important is that every time there is a credit cycle at the tail end of the credit cycle after a four five six years whatever it happens to be of very low interest rates of zero percent interest rates of booms and busts you get frauds right at the end you get it's it, it's it's the warren buffett idea of you know yeah. you only see who's swimming in the nude when the tide goes out so give us a flavor of the sort of frauds in the in, in your in your research well i mean in, in in the book i kind of argue that there's there's four basic types of frauds so i mean the most simple kind of fraud that you can get is what i would call a long firm which is what the uh, cray twins called it where you either borrow some money and don't pay it back or buy some goods and credit and never pay for them. So what you have is, I mean, the classic example is the great salad oil fraud. Oh, I like the sound of this, the salad oil fraud. Tell me, who's this geezer? It's just 
a hilarious concept. The a guy called Tino DeAngelis in the 1960s in America just was the biggest marketer of soybean oil. And there was the highest grade of soybean oil was salad oil. So it was stuff that you could actually put on food that way. And he had a lot of need for financing, so he borrowed a lot of money. But the money was collateralized against tanks of this high-grade, valuable oil. And one of those tanks was worth millions of dollars. They were, they were big tanks. But the thing is that the bank that was lending him the money only occasionally came out to check that there was oil in the tanks. <laughs> and it's quite difficult to tell the difference between a tank full of valuable salad oil and a tank that's basically full of seawater with a few gallons of oil floating on the top. <laughs> and, and, and so this was what he did. And he ended up borrowing enough money to finance more soybean oil than the United States of America produces in a year. Love it. And he used it, he used it all on future speculation. He stole some of it. And in the end, there was enough bad debt when his whole empire fell apart to knock over the American Express Company and a couple of wow. brokerages in uh, Chicago. It would have, it happened that it that was on the same day that JFK was assassinated, so it kind of never really made the news at the time. But this was just a massive collapse, and it was a collapse entirely because solid oil floats on water, so you can you can do that scam. And, and what happened to him? He went to prison, and this, this is an interesting thing. He went to prison for 10 years, something like it. He reckoned that prison saved his life because he was massively overweight, and he lost weight in the uh, joke and survived a few years later. It's all that salad oil, obviously. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah he, he didn't look like a guy who ate much salad. But didn't a lot of prisoners say that he saved their life too, that he was some well, sort of kind of life coach in prison? Yeah, oh, yeah, no, he was. He put people straight. And, and then he came out. Brilliant. And what was the first thing he did when he came out of prison? It was another securities fraud. He just couldn't help himself. Yeah, the, the strange thing about this crime is that people can't help themselves. Of all the cases that I wrote about in the book, in very few of them was it a first offence. Often mm. the big legendary fraud that kind of gets the guy worth writing about in the book came after the person had carried out another fraud, been caught and served time, and then still got put back into a position of trust, which is just it, it's very interesting to me from a kind of economics background how that happens, how the system is set up. Firstly, that they always come back to the well. And secondly, that people always give them another chance. Well, I mean, that is, but that's kind of human nature. You do, you know, when people come in and they spoof and they, and they, yeah. they can tell a good story. I mean, the great one is the story of Poyas. Tell me that one about yeah. McGregor. Oh, one of the earliest things in uh, capitalism. Yeah, that's, everyone's favourite is either Solid Oil or the Land of Poyas. And this was a Scottish basically an adventurer. He portrayed himself as a soldier, but he actually tended to get kicked out of the army for insubordination. But then he showed up in London in the 1850s saying that he'd been given a land grant by the tribal chiefs of Poyas, which is a piece of land near modern Honduras, and he raised bonds on behalf of the governments of Poyas and sold land to <laughs> Scottish emigrants, booked two ships to send people to emigrate and colonise this part of the New World. And there was just no such place. The, <laughs> the, it, it, there was no capital city. He'd completely made that up. 
there was just literally a stretch of mud and a few Native Americans hanging around who'd never heard of this guy. And it turned out that the entire country was a fake. He <laughs> seemed to believe that he could just will it into existence. You know, it's weirdly similar to the way that the crypto guys... Precisely, this is what I'm talking about. They can just fake it till they make it, and that at some point in the future, you know, he he thought that once these hard-bitten Scottish uh, tradespeople had shown up on a random piece of American shore, they would build a capital city and it would all come true. The shiniest city in the hill. But I mean, this is what I mean. Like, I don't see much difference between trying to will into existence a financial infrastructure based on a notion of money and some lad pretending a country existed and selling shares and bonds on the back of it. And give me another flavour of the sort of... Because, I mean, the book is just full of... And then again, you know, the, the subtitle is How Frauds Reveal the Inner Workings of Our World. That's what I love about it, that this well, is just endemic. Well, yeah, I mean, the, th- the thing is, I mean, the reason I, w- I wrote it is that, you know, I've been in the economics profession for years and years, and I just thought, you know... Economists always write about the functional economy, and that's like being a doctor who tries to learn about the human body from studying well people. You, yes. know, you, you, you learn about things like by studying how they break down and how the injuries happen and how the systems are subverted. So uh, we had the Portuguese banknote scandal. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's slightly more abstract than just borrowing money and not paying it back. There was a guy in Portugal in the 1920s, who just realised that the Bank of Portugal occasionally printed banknotes to finance the government. You know, it, it's monetary finance. Yeah. You know, it's a bit like the Bank of England now. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I just, have to, I just have to throw that in. Yeah, yeah, well, it did do that. And also, this was politically sensitive then. So okay. when it was printing banknotes to finance the government, it tried to keep this secret. Okay. And so what happened is that if you managed to get some headed note paper from the Bank of Portugal and you were able to forge the signature of the governor of the Bank of uh, Portugal, you could show up at the London firm that printed their banknotes with a letter saying that <laughs> they wanted $20 million worth of Portuguese escudos to be printed for a secret project that no one was to be told about. And call your arse pocket. Was, yeah. And, and, you know, and this, is, this is the perfect way to counterfeit banknotes. You know, you don't bother with printing them yourselves. You just counterfeit the letter to the official printer to print a load for, for banknotes uh, that are perfect forgeries because they've been made on the same press with the same plates. Unfortunately, he pushed it too far. He printed something like 5% of Portuguese GDP worth of <laughs> And the resulting current, I mean, it, this was awful. The resulting currency crisis ended up bringing down the Portuguese government. And that was how the Salazar dictatorship lasted for the next 50 years. So it was kind of funny, but it had really serious consequences. And, you know, you study that and you think, oh, right. So, you know, when you think, What's to stop someone from just printing a load of banknotes and saying that they're real money? The answer is surprisingly little. And as long as you keep it under control, it's very difficult to see how that's different from what the government does in its ordinary financing. 
But isn't that precisely what so much of crypto was? Like, you know, the idea is you print money and see how much you can get away with it. And you call it money, our Portuguese friend, okay, who's yeah. at least had the yeah. decency to go through forging the governor's, you know, yeah. initials and the governor's thing and, and go to London. But, you know, so much of crypto is you issued this, frankly, this bullshit. You call it money. You sell it to some poor gullible person who believes your story because most of this, you're just telling a story. You're just selling, you're selling a yarn, right? You create a crypto coin. You sell a few of them. That gives you a price. You then announce you that you're a crypto billionaire. You get Tony Blair and Bill uh, Clinton and Giselle and Tom Brady to back you. <laughs> and away you go. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that interests me is there isn't much of a Greek cryptocurrency scene. There's not much of a crypto scene in Lebanon. Uh, you don't get many crypto guys in Nigeria. They're all in high trust societies. They're all in places like Britain and the USA and Canada where people show up and trust each other. When you've said there's something, there's something in your book called the Canadian Paradox. Explain that to me. Well, I mean, the, the thing is that if you think of a low trust society, you're thinking of Greece, Lebanon, Nigeria. Yeah. Places like that have surprisingly little fraud in their normal business communities. They have a lot of fraud against the government. They commit frauds against foreigners. But domestically, you won't really get to run a long firm in Lebanon because if you show up in Lebanon wanting to buy a load of goods on 90-day terms, people are going to check you out, check your family back, you know, and unless they yeah. know who you are and who your people are back to the birth of Christ, you're not going to get it done. Yeah. That's how Greek ship owners can do million-dollar deals on a handshake. In Canada, there's huge amounts of fraud. Canada is your perfect high-trust society, and one of the consequences of that is if you show up in Toronto wearing a nice suit with good manners and say that you want to raise one million Canadian dollars for a gold mine, you'll probably get it. There's, there's a Canadian university, McMaster University, which... This isn't in the book because it happened since the book, but it was just a perfect example. They were having a new building built, and one day the financial control department got an email that just said, Hiya, we're changing our bank details. Can you make sure that all the payments go to this new bank account? <laughs> and that was it. $10 million Canadian dollars had gone to an entirely scam account before the real builders phoned up and said, excuse me, we haven't been paid for the last six months. And they just and, they just sent it. And that, that's a high-trust society. But the real interesting question here is, do you want to be Canada or do you want to be Lebanon? Do you want to be the kind of place where everyone has to check everyone else out? Or do you want to be the kind of place where you can show up and... Uh, raise money for a new business in a couple of weeks. Because actually, you can have quite a lot of fraud and quite a lot of dishonesty in a basically productive environment. You know, fraud is parasitical. So you would expect to see more fraud where there's more real economic activity to parasitize. You know, and that's why you have crypto happening in an overall stock exchange boom. You know, you wouldn't get this if interest rates were 5 or 6% and people could earn 5% by putting money in the bank. So it's all to do with this idea that 
not all to do, but it's the it's the logical financial conclusion of a policy of zero percent interest rates over a long period of time it means that there's no real return on anything. Therefore, anything goes. And basically, everyone's just selling a story at this stage because nobody's got any sense of how to discount, of how to price, of how to actually give some real value because you need a positive rate of interest to give you some discount rate in order to actually give you some asset value. Yeah, and it puts some people in a position of need because, you know, if you are someone who's planning on living off savings or living off an investment account, then, you know, when interest rates are 5 or 6%, you know how money, much money you've got to spend each year. You know how much your yeah. income is. You know, you don't necessarily need to take a risk. You might take a few risks to increase your capital or whatever. Yeah, but you've got 7% income, so you can, yeah, you can potter along. When interest rates are zero... You've got to do something. You, know, you you can't put the money in a bank account at minus one percent and live off the minus proceeds. So people start being in the position where they know they've got to take risk, and it changes their psychology. It changes the kind of things that they're willing to do, and so you get this sense of unreality, which I think is how a lot of people ended up getting into imaginary monkeys or. Uh, <laughs> Bitcoins or sort of what is it, doggy coins or Dogecoins. Dogecoins, uh, Dogecoins. Yeah, we is... should have a John. We should have a Mac coin, yeah. right? We we'll issue. <laughs> we we'll issue. not one already. We we'll issue our own currency, right? And we'll issue a hundred bits of this currency, right? And we'll sell them to some for ten grand. Okay. Yeah. So overnight we're millionaires. Yeah. Okay. Totally, overnight yeah, we're millionaires, yeah. and and away we go. We can set that up this afternoon. Mac coin. I love it. <laughs> So, I mean, two or three years ago, you could have sold a lot of that, David. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm actually, I actually still remember pub conversations where I was thinking, oh, you know, I could put up one of these coins and sell, uh, you know, even if I sold like $1 million worth of coins and all the rest crashed, I'd still have the money. And now I'm looking back at it three years ago thinking, ah, it's all turned to hell like I said it would. But I'm thinking, on the other hand, you know, I don't <laughs> actually have that million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and then you and I are stuck. Looking yeah. at pictures of Sean Goder in a pub in Hollyhead <laughs> with no cash. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great book called Mad Money about the Oklahoma oil patch boom and the collapse of the banking system. And by a guy who lived in Oklahoma and saw all of his school friends get incredibly rich while he was working as a journalist on the local newspaper. And then all of those guys lose all the money and go bankrupt. And his conclusion to it is the one thing that keeps me awake at night is I could have gone down to this bank when during the speculation, oil speculation and borrowed $5 million. The manager was a school friend of mine. He would have given me the loan just on a handshake. I could have buried that $5 million in my backyard. And then when it all went bust, I could have dug up $4 million and handed it to the bankruptcy trustees who would have been delighted to get 80 cents in the dollar. <laughs> Anything, you know, why didn't I do that? Well, they will, I mean, the whole, the whole, the, all our lives financially should have, could have, would have, you know, yeah, why exactly. You but Dan, this has been a fascinating tour around the madness of fraud against the background of this latest one, this FTX, our friend. Yeah. I've always said, you know, you should never trust a man who goes by three initials, SBF, <laughs> you know? You've got MBS, you've got DSK, you've got them all. But listen, Dan, that was really brilliant, brilliant. I love it, I love it. And uh, now that you've been on the show, you're going to be on again? 
Oh, I would love to. I would love to. The, the great thing about writing a book on fraud is whenever it looks like it's going out of print, someone commits a new big fraud to get it back in the <laughs> Not a bad business model. Not yeah, a bad. Yeah, yeah. Dad Davison, thank you so much for chatting to us. Fantastic, and, uh, thanks. That's great stuff. Thank you ever so much. Do you know, I, I never actually looked at it that way and thought about it that way. Like that was like another impact of low interest rates or zero interest rates is that people were looking for something to yeah. invest in to get a bigger return. But it, now it makes me wonder, is there an optimal interest rate where everybody's happy? But before you answer that, before you answer that, let's go pay some bills. That's the optimal interest rate. <laughs> 5,000 years ago, yeah. right? We, this is a very old concept. And of course, what it is, is that the rate of interest needs to be positive to incentivize those with money to lend it. So that's the greed part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it also, once you've incentivized money to be spread around, to be lent around, then the need part comes in. So those people who need money and don't have it, get their hands on it. Yeah. So if you look at the rate of interest as probably the most consequential financial innovation in, in human history, mm. right? And then you think, okay, what is the rate of interest? The rate of interest is the price of time. 
right? Okay. Now, this is something okay. we've got to get our heads around, right? So I'm lending to you for two years or for five years or for 10 years, right? Yeah. The five or 10 years interest rate is the price of time, right? So if the rate of interest for 10 years is 10%, what you're saying is we're putting a 10% price on time. Okay. Now, if you reduce that to zero, it means that you obliterate the notion of putting a price on time. You obliterate the notion of giving the person who has money the incentive to lend money. And what you do then for is by reducing the rate of interest to zero, you can't price anything, right? Okay, because okay, all yeah, assets yeah. are priced about how much is the asset worth? What discount rate do you use today to make an evaluation of how much the asset is worth in the, in the future? Yeah. If you have a rate of interest of zero, you're just bullshitting, yeah. right? You okay. don't have a model, okay? So when I first started working in this business, right, the rate of interest in Ireland was 15% in the early 1990s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard so to imagine that. So in a 15% actually. interest rate, mm. you, you use that into your, into your head and you begin to, to value everything, right? Now... If you have been brought up since 2008, where the rate of interest has been close to zero for a long, long time, mm. and you're a financial player, you've no experience. Yes. You don't know what yeah, it's yeah. like to go into a world yeah. of... You have a totally different mindset. And you don't yeah. know how to value anything. Yeah. So your valuation was all based on whether you believe the story. So yes. people, the, the, the reason that crypto went up was people sold other people a story. There was no valuation model saying, actually, you know what? This doesn't make any sense to me. But not just crypto, lots and lots of things, right? Don't, let's not just have a go at crypto, right? Yeah. Lots and lots of stuff at the tail end of this last few years have reached stratospheric levels. You know, whether it's Netflix or Apple yeah. or Disney or any of these things that have fallen to earth, right? It has been the wake-up call of the world going from zero interest rates to maybe 5% interest rates. Yeah. So an entire generation of millennial financers have no idea what to do because they've never experienced it. Now, I'm not saying that always you should look to the old grey heads or the grey beards, or the, but there is a certain amount of collective wisdom in having been around for a couple of years. But there, there, it reminds me of that old phrase of, you know, knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. Exactly. You know, you, look, you remember I told you about the Merchant of Prato, John? The book. Indeed, it's burned in Dattini, right? And yes. Dattini was always, you know, his whole idea that the rate of interest in Renaissance Italy was extremely low, about 6%. Right. right. So think about the risks these guys were taking. They were buying and selling in Bruges and London and they had to get cloth and dyes from Turkey. and like, So they were taking huge risks yeah, and the rate yeah. of interest. So they were always calculating, always calculating, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And if you read The Merchant of Prato, what you find is this obsessional approach with value for money because the rate of interest is positive. Mm. But when the rate of interest is zero, you don't give a shit about the value of money yes. because money yeah, loses yeah, its yeah. value, you know? Yeah. You know, and it was, I'll tell you who it was. It was Benjamin Franklin came up with the expression, right? Benjamin Franklin came up with the expression that time is money, and credit is money, right? You know that that time is money. Yeah, yeah. So that expression is actually true, you know? And it, it's, it's funny, you know, like that if you look at the Merchant of Prato, it's all about don't waste your time because time is money. Don't waste your time because the rate of interest is positive and your opportunity cost is always significant. So 
Imagine the rate of interest is doing two functions, right? Mm. Central bankers and economists talk about inflation and all that sort of stuff, right? But it's also doing something else. So that's one thing, yeah, right? But the other thing I think is even more consequential, which is that the rate of interest, imagine the rate of interest is, a, let's say, 10%. So yeah. you're putting a price on time. So what you're doing is by using the rate of interest, you're time traveling. This is the fascinating thing about money, right? That mm -hmm. it actually allows you to live in the future. So you, John Davis, decide to borrow from me, Dave McWilliams. Yeah. You have invented a future in your life. You've said, okay, I am going to do something and I'm going to pay you back in five years time. Yeah. But you've invented, you've time traveled already to a new John Davis, yeah. right? In the future. Yeah, I'm realizing my, my vision. Yeah, exactly. So what you're actually doing is you're actually, now think about this, you're creating an image of the future in your head. What you're also doing is you're thinking about progress as a vertical concept, right? Okay. So you're going to start yeah. here. So think about Times Arrow, all these big, big ideas, I think stem from the rate of interest, right? Okay, right. That, so in the past, you know, time was circular, right? So you're born, you, you live, you grow old, you die. Yeah. You plant, you harvest, night and day winter and summer, all yeah. these cycles. So ancient people saw the world in big cycles, right? But that there was a sort of a resetting of the world according to nature's cycle. Once we started to become a monetary animal, right, using things at the rate of interest, we begin to see time as a vertical notion, as an arrow going forward, right? And this is, I think, what the problem is, if intellectually, right? Yeah. That if you see time as a vertical concept that you can put a price on, what you tend typically is not to see the great cyclical ebbs and flows, right? right. That are also part of the process of getting old and moving sure, into the future. Sure, yeah. And what basically has happened here is that the credit cycle, which is the most profoundly unforgiving cycle, we know mm. that because you get booms and busts and ups and downs and little, little, all the time, right, has been eliminated by the central bankers reducing the rate of interest to zero. And that has lulled millions of people into a false sense of security right. about yeah. the future and has led to naivety. And it's the naivety that has led people to believe bullshitters like SBK or whatever his name is, right? Mm. Okay? So the rate of interest is a... Is a I, I know I'm getting all nerdy on this, but it's a phenomenally interesting <laughs> yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is. It because is. it allows you to travel in time. And once it allows you to travel in time, it allows you to imagine the future. And once it allows you to imagine a future, you as a human make the fatal mistake of reducing your risk profile. Because the one thing we know about the future is it's unquantifiable, right? Yeah. That's the beauty yeah. of life. Yeah. It's unquantifiable. But by reducing the rate of interest to zero, what you've done is you've lulled people into a false sense that they can actually imagine the future. And this is what's happened with crypto. You know, we're going to have a new money. Yeah. In the future, we're all going to... Horseshit. But because <laughs> yeah. people were lulled into a false... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in fact, I believe it, central bankers should take some of the blame for what has happened to the financial system. Because by constantly undermining the rate of interest's signaling power about risk to the rest of the world, they've just created these bubbles. And I think this is just the first one to burst... And there'll be many more.